Father, we thank you for the invitations that you extend to us. And I was reading in Psalms recently, and there was an invitation. And you said, call on me in the day of trouble. And I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Now, there are many guys in this room, and we can vouch for that from personal experience. We were in trouble. We were in big-time trouble. Much of it, much of it, if not all of it, due to our own foolishness. We, we had wandered far away from what we knew to be true. Yet at a moment when you cut off all exits, we had nowhere to look except to you. And because of your mercy in cutting off all escape routes, we only had one place to escape to and one person, and that was you. And we called on you in the day of trouble, and you rescued us. And uh, ever since then, we've been honoring you because of what you've done. And, and, and we're amazed, Lord, because that hasn't just happened once where we called on you and you rescued us. Uh, we, we called on the Lord Jesus Christ, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when we called on Christ and trusted in him alone, not in our works, not in uh, anything except him and his grace and his mercy and the fact that we believe that he died in our place. When we called on him for salvation, we were, we were rescued. And the amazing thing is, you continue to rescue us. You continue, Lord, to save us. You continue to come through for us in tight, tight, constricted places where we find ourselves. How grateful we are to know you. How grateful we are to know your word. How grateful we are to be recipients of grace that continues to astonish us. We are men who are prone to wander. We can get easily sidetracked. We can get, uh, we can get off course and we don't mean to. But when we discover we're off course, all we have to do is call upon you in the day of trouble and you will rescue us and once again we'll honor you. Help us with our spiritual GPS. Not to forget our destination. That we're not just living on this earth, but we're going to live forever. Thank you that Christ has made a way for us forever. And that when we die, we'll immediately go into his presence. In the interim, until we get to that moment, navigate us and lead us and teach us and instruct us. Beginning with this evening, Lord, many of us have had uh, difficult weeks, had long days. Help us uh, to stay focused. Speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit as the word is opened, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're doing this study on finishing strong, and uh, once again, just by way of review for a couple minutes, the metaphor of a race is used many times in Scripture, and if we had a foundational verse for this study, it would be Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, the endurance part is critical in this race because it's a long race. It's a hard race. Uh, the Christian life is not an easy race to run. Uh, Acts 14, says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If you're sitting here feeling pressure, uh, feeling some anxiety, uh, uh, feeling fatigue and just uh, a little bit worn out, um, you're, on, you're, you're right on schedule and you're right on track. Because through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And every tribulation that you have brings stress and it brings pressure and uh, it saps energy, doesn't it? And so when you have more than one, and oftentimes we have more than one area of stress and one, more than one area of difficulty, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many See, you're running the race and you're on target. A buddy of mine, his dad flew bombers over Germany on those bombing runs out of England. It'd take them four or five hours to get over there, sometimes longer. And sometimes, you know, it seemed like it was taking longer than normal. And it's nighttime, and those guys are thinking, are we off course? And then all the flak starts going off around you, and all the anti-aircraft fire. And as he said to my friend, his son, he said, that's when we knew when we were on target, is that it just, all hell broke out around us. That's kind of true in the Christian life. So if you got a lot of stress and you got a lot of stuff and you got a lot of issues, you're probably just right on track following the Lord. Um, it's a hard race, it's a difficult race. And we're looking at different aspects of finishing strong. Because in this race, the name of the game, what we, what we want to do by God's grace and His mercy is to finish strong. In long races, and again, this is by way of review, in long races, um, marathons, if you've seen the New York City Marathon on TV, uh, on ESPN, and you'll see those guys running across whatever bridge that is in New York, I mean, there's 25, 30,000, 40,000 people. If you ever stop and think about it, very, very few less than 1% are anywhere near uh, the starting line when the race starts. Most of them are blocks behind the starting line. But are they worried? Are they concerned? No. Most of them are sipping lattes. They're not concerned. Why? Because it's in a long race. And the principle is, in a long race, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you finish. Christian life is a long race, that's why he says in Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance. So we get fatigued, we get worn out, we get frustrated at times. But as Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, we press forward to the high calling of Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. We're following Christ just every day. We go to bed fatigued, we get up, and mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3 says, as thy days, Deuteronomy says, so shall thy strength be. 
So we're all running this race, guys. And we're looking at the different aspects of running the race. And tonight, I want us to look at a guy, uh, that how I would characterize Manasseh is that he had a lousy start, but a great finish. He wasted a lot of years. He knew the truth. He had a godly father. He, uh, he was raised, quote unquote, in a Christian home. He, he was taught the truth. He had, family, he had a father and family that modeled the truth. His dad was Hezekiah, one of the great kings. Uh, but as a young man, he decided he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. He, he, he was just too smart for this. And he was going to go off on his own way, on his own terms, and he was going to flat out do what he wanted to do. And he should have had a great start, but because of his own foolishness and because of the hardness of his heart, he had a terrible start. But, but after all those wasted years, as we're going to see, this guy finished strong. I grew up in church, as many of you did. I uh, was in Sunday school every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If the door was open, we were there. And then my folks, when we put me, put me to bed at night, I mean, we had Bible story booklet. So, I mean, I've, I knew the stories. I knew about Moses and Daniel, and I thank God for that heritage. But somehow, one of the greatest stories in the Old, in the Old Testament, somehow it fell through the cracks. And this guy, Manasseh, I never heard of until I was, I was in college. I was at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto on a Sunday, and David Roper got up to preach, and he preached on Manasseh, and I was mesmerized by Manasseh. So much of what I'm going to give you tonight is what I heard from David Roper. And it's based, let's go ahead and take our Bibles, and let's turn to 2 Kings 21. Uh, Manasseh was a guy who, uh, well, I, one of the ways I'd characterize him, he was in the same league, he was in the same ballpark with, say, Attila the Hun, and with, and I'm not exaggerating here, Attila the Hun, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, Hitler, Pol Pot. Uh, my, my dad and my brother went on a mission trip to Cambodia, and they saw those, all those skulls in the killing fields stacked up. The Assyrians used to do that. Stack up the skulls. Behead them and just stack the skulls and leave them there. Uh, if Manasseh had a favorite color, it was red, blood red, and it was somebody else's blood. This guy was a killer. An amazing story. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was bad news. 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He co-ruled with his dad, Hezekiah, probably for about 10 years. Uh, you know, it, it was sort of an apprenticeship, kind of break the kid in kind of thing. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And let me tell you something. They were crying for term limits with this guy. Um, John Calvin once said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And you see that in Scripture. And this guy was a wicked ruler. 
and the nation was under judgment. Um, verse 2, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now watch this. This is an interesting verse. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now that's a mouthful. What does it mean? Well, it's speaking of the nations that the Lord dispossessed before Israel. He's talking about when Israel came out of Egypt and was going to go up to the promised land and take the land after all those years, uh, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they should have gone right into the land, as you know, but because of the unbelief of 10 of the 12 spies, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, um, the leadership is transferred from Moses to Joshua, and he leads them into the promised land, book of Joshua. And that land was inhabited by the Canaanites, Amorites, Perizzites, all these different ites. Highly advanced people, um, had, had the greatest technology of the day, had, had massive cities, massive walls, iron chariots. Israel had none of this. Um, they were cultures that were, they were in, for that day, they were technologically savvy, had the iron chariots, very intelligent. They were obsessed with sex, had all these false gods, and the worship of gods all had to do with sexual perversion. As a result, a lot of children were born with venereal disease, and there was a lot of babies born blind in these cultures. Um, just just uh, wretched, wretched in their practices. Um, and the reason I'm going into all this is that this says that Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. In other words, he matched them. He equaled them in evil. And he was raised in a godly home. And now it's going to elucidate what he did. Three, for he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Dad was a godly man. Um, the high places were groves in those hills around Jerusalem, and they would carve out, you know, a uh, little sanctuary, a little park-like thing, a little chapel thing in the hills, and put their false gods in there. His dad, his dad did the right thing. His, his dad destroyed them. He came along and rebuilt them. Manasseh did. He erected altars for Baal. Um, Baal was, was probably the most popular false god. Um, wasn't it Ahab and Jezebel that had 850 prophets? It was either 450 or 850. I can't remember at the moment. It's one of those two numbers. Uh, prophets of Baal who ate at their table. Uh, Baal worship uh, was, was utterly perverse sexually. There are all these myths. Of course, Baal was a myth. But they had all these stories about Baal. And when they would have their worship services, they would publi publicly reenact the, the stories of Baal. Baal killed and castrated his own father. He was in incestuous relationships with his two sisters, and then it's about as far as we can cover. 
It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. In Baal worship, uh, they had priests. The priest uh, also would serve as prostitutes, and there were three kinds of prostitutes. There were male prostitutes, female prostitutes, and sodomite prostitutes. And these acts were done in public to act out the stories of Baal in, in public. It's part of the worship. And Manasseh brought that back in. Um, some traits of Baal worship. They were pro-environment. Now, you think I'm kidding. You remember Ahab and Jezebel? Elijah showed up. Is it 1 Kings 17 or 18? He showed up and he said it won't rain until Yahweh says it will rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Now, why, why would God tell him to say that? Because they thought Baal controlled the environment. No, Yahweh controls the environment. And he proved it to him. You see? So then later, three and a half years later, he's up on Mount Carmel, Elijah, fighting, or having a face-off with the, the prophets of Baal. And they're cutting themselves and calling down rain on the sacrifices and water and nothing's happening. And he's mocking them and saying, hey, maybe Baal's in the men's room and he's not available. I mean, that's what he's saying there in the, in the text. And then you know what he did. He said, okay, here we go. And he sets up the dry wood and all that, and then he has them douse it with the water. And when you go, uh, when you go to Car Carmel, you can still see today where they would sacrifice to Baal, and they would have these, these faults, these altars, but there would be crawl spaces underneath those altars where someone could get up underneath and light those things, and it would appear to be supernatural. So what did uh, Elijah do? He just had him douse it. Put on water. Put on more water. Put on some more water. All right. Let's see if the, God, if the Lord God is real. Boom. He's real. Oh, and then right there, he saw a cloud way out, way out over, because from there, you can see the Mediterranean. Way out, way out. Here comes a cloud. What's that? That's, that's a rain cloud. There's been rain in three and a half years. Who's running this thing? Yahweh is. You see? Not Baal. So they worship the environment. Uh, they were pro-choice, as we're going to see in a minute, because one of the things they did in Baal worship is that you would show your allegiance to Baal by, at a certain point, going to one of the worship services and everybody would get tanked up and all whirling dervishes and all this satanic stuff and you pound in the drums and you get all worked up in the state. You would take an infant son, your infant son, and throw him into the fire. You'd slaughter babies. Don't ever wonder where that comes from. You know where it comes from. Um, and thirdly, they were, they were pro-homosexual. And as they would do these public acts, uh, you better not say anything. Because if you did, no doubt you would be accused of intolerance. <laughs> now, I'm just saying, I find this fascinating. Because you see, there's nothing new under the sun. We may not call it Baal worship, but we are surrounded by Baal worship. We're just surrounded. But Jesus is still Lord, you know? The Word of God is still the Word of God. We're still outnumbered because God works through the remnant, you see? So 
we're good, we're fine. Okay? This means you might get a little heat now and then. But don't be surprised. You see? Okay. That's actually a verse. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's in Peter. You see? Okay. Now, I'm going into all that because he brought Baal worship back. He was raised in a godly home, and he brings that stuff in. You talk about being hard-hearted. Uh, he also, well, let's pick up three again. He rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah's father destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. Uh, an Asherah was a, a symbol of a female deity, probably some kind of phallic symbol that was there and worshipped. Um, he did that as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, which is the guy that, you remember, Elijah stood up to, I just talked about. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He didn't serve the God who made the stars, he served the stars. Okay. He built houses in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. I read that wrong. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Not for the Lord, but for false gods. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. This is utter blasphemy. Six, he made his son pass through the fire. Can you imagine such a thing? Whenever this is recorded in Scripture, when you're reading through Scripture, God will talk about that, that you made your sons pass through the fire, and such a thing, God says, never entered my mind. It is evil beyond comprehension. <clears throat> he made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, and use divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. When it says he dealt with mediums and spiritists, the idea there actually is that he uh, put them in positions of leadership and influence. So if you were wrong in rebellion to God, uh, you were wide open for promotion. Th this was a good time to be in rebellion against Almighty God. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, this is the temple now. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers. If only, watch this, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. God was going to bless them, favor them. It was the king's responsibility to lead the people as an example in following the one true God. And this guy was in absolute rebellion to the living God. Verse 9, but they did not listen, the nation did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them, now watch this, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Before, he equaled the evil of the Canaanites, now he has lapped the Canaanites. He's caught them. He's passed them. He went further in evil than they ever thought about going. Manasseh did. You familiar with this guy at all? Is this not an incredible story? 
And we're going to study the guy. We're looking at his life because he's actually going to finish strong. If you can believe such a thing. Verse 10. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, you know, and God's always got his prophets. God always has his guys <laughs> that have no fear. It doesn't mean they don't it doesn't mean they don't ever quake, but it means they just keep going in the right direction, even as their knees knock. You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in spite of your fear. And and I and I I love reading the prophets. Unfortunately, if if any of the prophets showed up today in the evangelical church in America, most of them would be asked to leave. Because they just, you know what they did? They just told the truth. They just laid it out. They weren't looking to win friends and influence people. They were just standing up. Here's what the Lord says. Did. Now, the life expectancy of prophets is not real high. They've always had trouble getting life insurance. A lot of them didn't last real long, you see. But that's all right. They are declaring the word of the Lord. And God always has his prophets and God always has his men. He always has them. Always. The Lord spoke to the, his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with idols. With his idols, actually. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. It's a pretty graphic picture. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Why? Because they abandoned him. You see? And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies. He's talking about invasion from foreign nations. 15, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's about to come to an end, you see. 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. The very strong Hebrew Christian tradition that it was Manasseh who took the prophet Isaiah and put him in a hollowed-out log and had him sawn in two. That was Manasseh. Favorite color was red. Blood red of anyone who stood for the one true God. Filled Jerusalem with blood from one end to another. Besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and all that he did and his sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they are. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. 
And Amon, his son, became king in his place. Now, it seems like this guy, and how long did this guy reign? 55 years. You ever, you ever have trouble figuring out why God lets things go the way they're going? Sure you do. And it appears here, this guy, this guy was, the, was the worst of the worst of the worst kings of Israel and Judah, by far. Equaled the Canaanites, didn't surpass the Canaanites in evil. And he reigns for 55 years, and then it appears from reading this that he, you know, died a peaceful death in his bed in an old age and slept with his fathers. But as Paul Harvey would say, in a minute, the rest of the story. You remember Paul Harvey, don't you? What a communicator. I mean, the guy was one of a kind. I mean, he'd come on, you know, he'd have the, for years he was on WAP in the morning and then again uh, at noon. And they, I don't even think they introduced, they did, I don't even think they introduced him, he just came on. He was Paul Harvey. Your radio didn't even need to be on. <laughs> He's coming on anyway. He's Paul Harvey. And all you needed to hear was about three words, and you knew who it was, because no one had a voice like that or intonation like that. He was one of a kind. The guy was incredible. But in the afternoons, I don't know, 5.15, 5.45 on WBAP, WBAP for years here in Dallas, He'd do this program called The Rest of the Story. And you're driving down the road real slow because it's 5.45 or 5.15. It's rush hour. There's not much happening. And suddenly you're frustrated and bothered and just trying to get home. And Paul Harvey starts telling this story. And suddenly you forget everything. And you're mesmerized listening to this guy. And in about two minutes, he's got you hooked. And you're focused. And you're listening. And he's building. And it's going to a climax. And you're just about ready to break into a sweat. And I mean, it's just right there at the end. And all of a sudden he says, and in a minute, the rest of the story. And then he'd start talking about true value <laughs> hardware. And I start heading over there. I don't need anything. But... <laughs> But Paul mentioned it. I'm going to do what Paul says. So anyway, you remember all that. And then he'd do a commercial, and then he's got you. And then immediately he's, he hooks you again. And then he tells this wild story, and you think it's going this way. And before you know it, it's over here. And you're going, my gosh, it's unbelievable. And he had one of those every day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. You can get the books. The rest of the story. There's a rest of the story on Manasseh. The whole story isn't in Kings because the purpose of Kings was to show the spiritual dry rot that had occurred in the nation and in the leadership as they departed from God. That was the purpose of Kings. The purpose was to show the dry rot that is set in and how it's set in and why it sets in our lives. But the rest of the story is over in 2 Chronicles 33. So let's turn there. It's pretty much the same in 2 Chronicles 33 in the first nine verses to what we just read in 2 Kings. So we'll pick it up 
in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. You know, the, the Lord has such patience, and he is so long-suffering with us. Have you had the experience of kind of getting off the path with the Lord? And you know, whenever you do that, he, he's, he's going to check you. He's going to prompt. He's going to hit that nerve of conscience. And uh, it, it might be, it's just amazing how he does that. You, you know the truth to begin with. You know what you're doing is wrong and you're off. And then maybe you, uh, I don't know, maybe you're in a restaurant and you hear the, somebody at the next table talking and they're Christians and they say something and it just pops your nerve of conscience again. Or you're looking for the ball game and you go past a Christian radio station and you hear the preacher and he just hits that nerve of conscience. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When we're off and we're in rebellion, the Lord has a way of flicking that nerve of conscience, doesn't he? Yes, he does. But see, we don't want to hear it. And so the longer you resist, the more difficult the promptings are going to get. Turn with me real quick. I'm just a little pair of parentheses here. Go to First uh, Timothy four. This will explain Manasseh, by the way, in First Timothy four, because you got to ask yourself the question: How could a guy who knew the truth do the stuff that he did and live with himself? 1 Timothy 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. We've got that in the evangelical church. We've got deceitful spirits. We looked at last week, Jesus said in Matthew, is it 6 or 7? 7, the end of 7. There'll be false teachers. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. They look like they're in the club. They look like they're in the church. But they're not. In later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. They're deceivers. And doctrines of demons. Okay? And we're surrounded by this stuff. Well, how, how, do, they, how do they get deceived? Two by means of the hypocrisy of liars. So you've got those who, quote, unquote, I'm not talking about guys outside the church, I'm talking about guys inside the church, who are teaching deceit. They're not teaching the Word of God. It's got, it's got, some, it's got some truth mixed in, but it's not the pure, unvarnished Word of God. They alter it, they mess around with it, And these men who do this are liars, and they are hypocrites. Those who deliver such a message, the message is delivered by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Watch this. Seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And in Paul's day, he gives an example. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from food. We've got 
quote-unquote people that say you shouldn't get married. We got people who say that Christian leaders shouldn't be married. You won't find that in the Word of God. You look at 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, don't we have the right to take along a wife, as do the rest of the apostles? All the apostles were married except Paul. And when they traveled, their wives were with them. But then at some point, somebody thought, well, if you're really religious and if you're really godly, you don't get married. Well, where did that come from? 1 Timothy 3. An elder is to be the husband of one wife. That's the norm. Doesn't mean a single man can't be in leadership. But the norm, the standard, is that God wants his leaders to be married and to have children. You see? That's what, I mean, that's what he's planned for, for men. It's, it's, it's the exception to not have that in your life. You see? And that's why if you don't have it and, you, and you're a young single guy here, you're, you're lonely. I remember being lonely. Because it's not good for the man to be alone. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So, you know, we were meant to be in a relationship with a gal. This is how God set the whole thing up. Okay. Hey, when all else fails, read the directions. <laughs> read the owner's manual. I grant you it's big. But it, 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 it pertains to everything concerning life and behavior. You see, okay. So he had men who would forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. Uh, enough said on that. I want to go back. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, sit in their own consciences with a branding iron. Let me, tell you, let me tell you what happened to Manasseh, and let me tell you what can happen to men who know the truth but refuse to acknowledge the truth. Let, let's, they're, they're, they're liars seared in their own conscience. So you know this, and I know it from personal experience. When I lie to my wife, what happens? I get flicked on that nerve of conscience by the Holy Spirit. Or I lie to someone at work. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Why? Because the Spirit of God wants me to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Now, if, 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 I'm, if I'm convicted of sin, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to confess it. I'm supposed to deal with it. I'm supposed to not ignore it. But when I ignore the promptings of the Spirit of God, and then I ignore it again, and then I lie to my life, and then I... Why, it, you, you know... We, we, we've got a lot of people in our culture who are just flat-out pathological liars. They lie, and they don't even need to lie. But they've gotten into the habit of lying. Now, as, as believers, when we lie, and, and even, as, even, even unbelievers, there's a conscience. But when you continually ignore the promptings of conscience, you see, conscience is a nerve. It's a nerve. I remember as a kid in church, seeing missionaries come back from Africa, and they would show these old grainy missionary films. And I was kind of mesmerized because I remember this one missionary and his wife who worked in a leper colony in Africa. And I'd never seen people with leprosy before. I can still see the images in my head as, I don't know, how old was I, eight, nine years old? People had lost their fingers and their hands and their toes and their feet, and it was all over their face. 
horrible. I, I'd never heard of it. I mean, I, I mean, I knew Jesus healed the leper, but I'd, I saw it on the screen. And as a little boy, I always thought that leprosy was a skin disease. Leprosy, because, you know, it would eat up the skin, eat up the hands. Leprosy is not a skin disease. I was just checking my arm, to be honest with you. Just to, there was something on there I hadn't seen before, in all honesty, but I'm good. Leprosy is not a skin disease. Leprosy is a nerve disease. When you've got leprosy, the first stage of leprosy, and we've got medical doctors in here, they'll tell you this, what happens is your nerves die. And your nerves do not convey any sensation to you. So a leper in a third world country on a, on a outside cooking, you know, outside as they do somewhere, and there is an old skillet, and he picks it up and turns to put it over here. Well, he can't feel the heat because his nerves are dead. The flesh is burning and singeing, and he doesn't feel the thing because the nerves are dead. He doesn't even know. And he looks down, and his hand's all damaged. Or a guy is walking in the town barefoot to the village, no, no shoes, steps on a piece of glass. He doesn't know it. He's just walking because he can't feel the glass in his foot. He might walk for, I mean, how long? He looks down and he's got blood all over, he's, I mean, and it's infected and it's foul and he's going to lose, you know, you know how that works. Leprosy is a nerve disease. Conscience is a nerve. And whenever I go contrary to the Spirit of God, he's going to check my nerve. But here's what can happen. You can get yourself into a state where you have denied the Spirit of God so long and so consistently that you see you have built up a callus on that nerve of conscience. And you can't feel anything. I think this is what happened to Manasseh. He just got worse and worse and worse. Oscar Wilde, the Irish poet, brilliant, brilliant guy, died in 1900. I mean, they still make movies of his stuff today. The importance of being earnest. The guy could turn a phrase. He was a genius. Listen to what he said. He said, the gods have given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of a new sensation. What paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I drew careless of the lives of other people. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. And I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character. And that, therefore, what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I ceased to be Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. Now, Manasseh could have said that. So let me say this. If the Spirit of God has been dealing with you on something, you better handle it. 
hey, hey, you know what, guys? We're not playing games. It's too serious. There's too much at stake. The whole world is falling apart. We got dry rot everywhere you look in this culture. Everywhere you look, but you got to make sure the dry rot's not in your own heart. So if the Spirit of God flicks you, you handle it. You respond. You take care of it. If you sense you need to go talk with your daughter that you hurt, you better get over there and talk to her. You don't rationalize it. You don't lawyer up. You don't do this. You don't minimize it. Go take care of your stuff before the living God and save your heart. Am I making sense? This isn't an ice cream social in here. We're not playing games. We're following the living God in a culture full of decay. But he loves his men. He loves us. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his. It doesn't say whose hearts are perfect. It doesn't say those whose hearts who never sin, but those whose hearts are fully his. See, I, I want you, Lord. I want you in my life. I want to be your guy. I want to follow you. So what do you do? You get off base, you sin, deal with it. Handle it, man. Just deal with your stuff. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from most unrighteousness. It's an incredible concept. It's not the concept. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just. He is faithful and just. You can never go to him in confession. He'll say no. He'll never do that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. I don't care what you have done or how many times you've done it. If we, are, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, watch this, from all unrighteousness. All. That's staggering. Is it not? Okay. Second Chronicles 33. Now watch. Hey, hey, watch this. Watch the gospel. Watch the grace of God. Watch the magnificence of Jesus Christ come into play here, okay? Uh, 33.10, 2 Chronicles. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Now, here's the rest of the story. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. These were the guys that would behead and stack them up as a pyramid, okay? That's what they were known for. So what does the Lord do? He brings in the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and they took him to Babylon. And we know from extra-biblical literature, from archaeological finds, the records of the Babylonians and others, that he was in a Babylonian, he was taken off into a Babylonian dungeon. Uh, he had a hook in his nose and he was in chains, uh, irons. For 12 years. That's the rest of the story. Actually, it's half of the rest of the story. 12 years. No movement, no repentance. Why? He's got a hard heart. 
He's fighting God. He's just fighting God. He's resisting God. He's resisting God. But I'm going to tell you something. (laughs) You're not going to beat God. Are you? No. No. He loves you so much, he'll beat you down. And a lot of us in here have had that experience. And it was the best thing that ever happened to us. And this is what happened to Manasseh. Look at verse 12. When he was in distress, or literally, literally, when he was hemmed in. (laughs) So the Lord put him in this dungeon. He's got a hook through his nose. He's in irons. And he's fighting God. And finally... Finally, he re- I mean, he just, he just gave up. He just surrendered. I, I, I met a guy last year. I was speaking in California. I've been out there several times. And meeting some guys before dinner, you know, waiting for dinner and introducing me. And he says, hey, meet. He gave me the guy's name. And I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, good. And he goes, yeah, he was an atheist until three months ago. I think he said three months ago. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, that's pretty wild. You were an atheist. He goes, absolutely. I think I was probably 40. I said, really? I, I wound up sitting with him at dinner. And I said, so tell me your story. He said, I just didn't believe in God. I never believed in God. I just had no interest in God. And, you know, living my life and business and all this. And Anyway, I guess went through, as I recall, had some family issues, was, I believe was divorced. Met a gal, asked her out, and she said no. I won't go out with you, but you can go to church with me. He said, okay. And he walked into church, and he looked at me, he said, you know, Steve, all I can tell you is that suddenly I knew it was true. And, he, and here's what he said. And he said, this is what I do remember. He said, and I just, he said, I just wanted to surrender. I'll never forget that. I just wanted to surrender. You know why? He was hemmed in. <laughs> Don't you love that? Because see, some of you guys are saying, yeah, that's, that, that was me. Yeah. In the goodness of God, he just hemmed us in. We had, and he cut off all exits. He cut them all off. See, he's the God who makes a way of escape. But see, when he cuts off, you know what happened here? The only way out was Jesus. The only exit was Jesus. The only exit was Yahweh, who's Jesus. You see. When he was hemmed in, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, watch this, his God. You've never seen that before in this guy's life. It's this God. It's this God. It's Baal. It's Baal Moloch. It's boom, boom. Whatever God, he'll smoke it. He'll drink it. But see, now it's Yahweh. It's Jesus, his God. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly. This wasn't just a, a 
This just wasn't something that rolled off his tongue glibly. This was from his gut, from his heart of hearts. He humbled himself greatly before the Lord God of his fathers. Look at verse 13. Here's the grace of God. When he prayed to him, he, meaning the Lord, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I'm going to tell you what happened to you. The first time I heard David Roper teach on this, I'm, I'm hearing the story, and he humbled himself, and he, of course he was forgiven. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. That's, isn't that wonderful? The amazing grace of God. He was forgiven. And then I read the next line. And God only forgave him, but God took him back and restored him to his kingdom. And you know what? I got angry. I, I just meant that, that hacked me off. Because I thought that was too much. I mean, forgive the guy. Yeah, forgive him. But to give him back his kingdom? That was my first reaction. I'm still a little upset by this, to be honest with you. And see, the reason I am is I don't appreciate my own condition. Because I'm no different than this guy. Oh, I haven't done some of the things that he did. And that's all, you know why I haven't done those things? It's just because of the grace of God and restraint of the Holy Spirit. That I didn't go that far. You know why you haven't done what the guys in the Manson gang did? Because of the restraint and goodness of God. Because we all have that same capability. You, you got guys at, at the California State Prison in San Luis Obispo, we're in the Manson gang, that love Christ. They love him. And they declare his word and they teach his word faithfully and they'll never get out of that prison. But when they were hemmed in, they found the amazing grace of God just like Manasseh. This is, this is, do you see why I'm saying this story ought to be known? This is, this is remarkable. This is incredible. This is the gospel. Is it not? Flip over to 1 Corinthians. I think I'm going to 1 Corinthians 6 here. We'll see if that's where I want to go. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. <laughs> yeah, I really got upset. I remember hearing that. Oh, that's great. God forgave him. That's wonderful. But then God gave him his kingdom back. You put him back on the throne. That really bothered me deeply. It's because I don't appreciate my own heart and my own sinfulness, and I don't appreciate, I didn't appreciate at the time, I didn't get just how much God had done for me in my own life that I had the capability to do everything this guy had done. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, guess what? That's everybody. Paul's writing to the church here. They would read this, they would read this letter publicly. So out loud they read from Paul, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch this. Such were some of you. Ah, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. True story. Ray Steadman at Peninsula Bible Church was preaching on this passage and he read it. He read the passage and then he said, if any of those terms that we just read describe you, would you stand to your feet? Right in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> I mean, people are, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that a few chuckled like you guys are chuckling. And then he didn't say anything, he just looked at them. And then one guy stood up. About 800, 900 people in the room Sunday morning. And then another guy stood up. And in about 45 seconds, everybody in the room was on their feet. Because, see, that's the church. That's who we used to be. We got swindlers in here. I think he's right behind you. <laughs> see, see, such were some of you. Is it Colossians or Ephesians? Let him who steals... Steal no longer. That's not you anymore. That's who you were, but you see, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's what happened to Manasseh. That's what's happened to you if you've called the name of Christ, and this is what's happened to me. It's called the grace of God. Let me give you uh, two principles. First of all, genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. I'll say it again. Genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. What you find in Manasseh's life and heart is that he expressed genuine repentance. I'm convinced there are two kinds of repentance. There's genuine repentance or authentic repentance, and there is synthetic or counterfeit repentance. And, and we've all seen counterfeit repentance. Some guy, I'm pausing for a minute. I, I, I got an email, gracious email from a friend. He said, I, I got a gentleman with, who's going to be in town, uh, part of state government, good guy, Christian guy. Love to have him just greet everybody before we start. And I've had email problems. I wasn't able to respond, but, and I don't see the guy who made the request. But I wasn't going to do it. And I'll tell you why. I learned a lesson on this. I was doing a conference in another state. We had about, I don't know, pretty big-sized conference, 1,500 guys, maybe 1,800. And I was speaking with my buddy Stu Weber and Gary Rosberg. 
And the guy was putting it on just as we were getting ready to start. He goes, hey, we got uh, Congressman uh, Conservative Family Value here. And uh, I want him to pray and greet, and greet everybody. I said, I don't, I don't think so. And he goes, he's really a good guy. I said, I'm sure he is. But I said, I don't think we want to, we don't want to get into that right now. You see, well, he came especially to the meeting. Well, if there were 1,800 guys, I'd come too. <laughs> now, I don't know the guy's heart, but I didn't want to do it. And you say, what was wrong with that? Well, let me tell you what happened. When I went backstage, they started early, and they went ahead and put the guy up there. And in three months, it comes out that this guy who was in Congress and all this and actually was a graduate of a Christian college and was a Bible major and the whole thing, had a wife and all these kids and, you know, homeschooled and did the whole thing and family this and conservative this and all that. He's got a thing going on with his secretary that's been going on for about nine years in secret. And it's everywhere. Everywhere. See, that's why. That's why. How many times have we seen that? On both sides of the aisle. And then they get found out, and then they're really sorry. But what are they sorry about? Well, they're sorry they got caught. In fact, they deny it. They deny it right up until the evidence is overwhelming, and then suddenly they're repentant. And you can tell, is it, now, is there not a difference between authentic repentance and counterfeit repentance? Yeah. See, the Bible says there's a godly sorrow. There's a godly sorrow. Thomas Watson used to say that genuine repentance is the vomiting of the soul. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. <laughs> Worshiping at the porcelain god at 3 a.m., up chucking your guts and there's nothing in your guts. I had it happen to me a week ago Friday night. Happens to me about every 10 years. I'm asking Jesus to come back. <laughs> Deliver me from this body of death. There's nothing worse than the dry heaves, is there? No. That's what repentance ought to be. Genuine, godly it's a sorrow. You, 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 you're, not, you're not lawyering up. You're not defending. You're not minimizing. You are confessing. And you loathe what you did. You loathe it. If you could get it back, you'd take it back, but you can't. So you throw yourself on the mercy of Almighty God. Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Genuine repentance from the gut, from the heart. No minimizing, no rationalizing, no defending. I am utterly, totally guilty. And you throw yourself on the mercy of God, a broken and contrite spirit. He does not despise. There's forgiveness, and that unlocks, that unlocks the door of God's amazing grace and mercy. And it comes like a flood like Niagara. It's the greatest thing in all the world, is it not? Number two, second principle I get from Manasseh. My past life does not exclude me from present service. Can I say it again? My past life does not exclude me from present service. A, a lot of times 
we're so grieved and we're so paralyzed by what we've done in the past, we think, well, I, you, know, I, 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 you know, Lord, I'd like my life to count. I wasted so many years. I'd like to be used by you. But we, we listen to the enemy. Well, you're, you're not qualified. And I've had, I, how many guys have I talked with over the years who've said, you know, I'd really like the Lord to use me in some way. I, that'll never happen. Why is that? I'm a failure. I failed. I failed horribly. Okay? Well, you see, the question you've got to ask yourself is, who else does God have to choose from? <laughs> Who's the guy in this room who has not failed miserably? There are guys in this room. You'd be astonished to know their stories because you see where they are now. And you don't, you, I mean, you don't, I mean, you know the guy for six months or a year, you have no clue where he was back here or where here or his story. And if you knew it, you'd be stunned. You'd be shocked. Well, what happened? Well, the Lord reached down and grabbed him. Hemmed him in. Hemmed him in. He had no exit except Jesus, and he called on the name of the Lord. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. That's the gospel. And you, and you got it. Some of you guys are sitting and saying, this, this, is, this is too good to be true. No, it isn't. <laughs> I'll, I'll grant you it's good. It's amazingly good, but it's true. Psalm 103. This is incredible. This is why John Newton, I talk about John Newton all the time. This is why he wrote to him Amazing Grace. He, he never got over grace. He just couldn't get over it. He couldn't get over what God had done in his life because he was such a Manasseh. He was such a reprobate. He ran slave ships from West Africa to the Caribbean. Raped out. He couldn't even count how many women. Threw people overboard. Never even thought about it. Was, was, a, was a rapist, was a murderer, Reprobate. Other sailors didn't want to get near him because of his language. They were afraid. That's absolutely true. Wound up, in the 1700s, he wound up as he was a white English guy who wound up a slave to a black woman. Black women didn't have white guys as slaves, but she did, and it didn't break him. He still fought and resisted God until years later, and then he called out. Calling the Lord, still a captain, still running slave ships. So how could he do that? Well, did you get all the truth? Did you figure it out all at once? No, neither did he. And he's getting ready to get on the ship and go out from port. And that morning he woke up and he had, he had seizures. Violently sick. Never been sick like that in his life. They had to call for another captain, replace him, and that ship took off. And as soon as it got over the horizon, he got up right out of bed and ate breakfast. He never sailed another ship again his whole life. Because, see, God had other plans for him. You know what the plans were for him? I'm going to turn this boy into a pastor. I'm going to take this reprobate and this hard-hearted rapist and murderer, and I'm going to turn him into a pastor. So God did. It was a long process. It was a long haul. And then he started writing hymns. Pastored his little tiny church. 
And then this young man came to him who was extremely wealthy and 23, 24 years old in Parliament. The young man said, I've really come to know the Lord and I want to be a pastor. He said, no, don't be a pastor. Stay in Parliament. That young man was William Wilberforce, who was mentored by John Newton his whole life. And see, Wilberforce was the man who broke the back of slavery in the British Empire, and John Newton mentored him all the way through it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In his whole life, John Newton would say, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Psalm 103, verse 10, actually 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. See, we think that we're going to be dealt with according to our sins. But no, Jesus came and took my sin upon him, and the wrath that should have come on me was put on Jesus. So he does not deal with me according to my sins. Watch this. And he does not reward me according to our iniquities. See, this is why we're such blessed men. Do we deserve to be blessed? Absolutely not. And there's the grace and mercy of Almighty God. Why? Because look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. My sin was put on Jesus and taken as far as the east is from the west. That's remarkable. Is it not? By the way, the name Manasseh means forgotten. Forgotten. Reminds me of Hebrews 10, 17. Your sins and lawless deeds. See, God only forgives sin. God forgets sins. Your sins and lawless needs. Watch this. I will remember no more. God forgives and God forgets. He forgets. But see, we remember and the enemy intimidates us and paralyzes us by our past sin. Get your eyes off your past sin and get your eyes on Jesus and what he has done. I think I've told this story here in the last couple of weeks, or maybe it was in the last couple of years. I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> Bob Beal, Master Planning Associates, he's got a logo, and his logo is he's got a He's got an elephant with a chain and a, to a stake. And one time I asked him, I said, hey, Bob, what's the deal on that? And he said, oh, well, a friend of mine one time was an investor in a circus, and he said, hey, you want to go to the circus today? Go behind the scenes? We'll hang out all day at the circus. He said, sure. They were all day at the circus. And just having a blast. And Bob sees the elephant trainer, and he sees these little baby elephants, chained to a stake, and then he sees these massive elephants, full-fledged adults, chained to a stake that obviously they could just easily just break loose from that thing without even thinking twice. So Bob asked the trainer, he goes, how in the world do you get those big elephants to stay in that place? He said, well, we start them young, and we put that chain around their ankle, attached to that stake, and they're just little guys. And they might try 10, 20, 30, 40,000 times to pull, up, pull away from that stake. They can't do it. 
And then there's a day where they become convinced in their own minds, I'll never move that stake. And they never try again. That's how we hold the big guys down with a little stake. They just don't think it can be done. And see, there are a lot of us who are Christian guys, and we're chained to our past. Because we just can't quite believe that we've been forgiven and that it's actually been forgotten. So Johnny and Sally were so thrilled because they were going to spend two weeks with Grandpa and Grandma, as they do every summer, as they would every summer. And they arrived that morning at the family farm, Grandpa's farm. And they just loved being there. And they put their stuff away. And then Grandpa took John and he said, hey, come here, I want to show you something in the barn. And takes him out to the barn, gives him a slingshot. Johnny's eight, nine years old. Grandpa had whittled a slingshot. And he said, hey, we got about an hour before lunch. I, I got to run over here and do some things in the pasture. Why don't you get down by the creek and just get used to this thing? See what you can hit. So Johnny went down to the creek. And I mean, he can't hit the side of a barn. I mean, he just, he's all over the map. And he hears the bell ringing for lunch, and so he starts heading back to the house. And he's walking up to the house, right past the barn. He looks over about 40 yards away. He sees Grandma's pet duck. And just on impulse, he loads up fires and hits that sucker right between the eyes and kills it. And he's in a state of shock. He couldn't hit anything. And he just killed Grandma's pet duck. In panic, he panics. He runs over. There's a wood pile. He, he, he takes that little duck and puts it around the wood pile and covers it up with kindling and some logs and all that. And he's patting it down. And he turns to go up to And there's his sister, Sally, standing there. She didn't say anything. She just looks at him. And they have lunch. And after lunch, Grandma says, actually, Grandpa says, hey, I'm going to take the kids fishing this afternoon. Grandma says, no, no, we've got to put up those peaches. I need Sally to stay and can those peaches. Sally said, well, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to stay and can peaches. <laughs> Didn't you, Johnny? <laughs> and then she whispered, remember the duck. <laughs> so she went off fishing with Grandpa, and he canned peaches all afternoon with Grandma. Next day, Grandpa said after breakfast, hey, I'm going into town. I'm going to take the kids and do some chores, and then we'll get some ice cream. Grandma says, you can't take, you can't take Sally. I need her right here with me. i got stuff that needs to be done. And we've got to get this finished for the church bazaar. And once again, Sally said, well, Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to stay and help you today, didn't you, Johnny? Johnny stayed and helped Grandma. She goes into town with Grandpa. Well, this goes on for several days. He can't take it anymore. He's hemmed in. And the little guy goes to Grandma, and with tears flowing down his cheeks, he confessed to Grandma that he'd killed her pet duck. She knelt down and put her arms around him, and she said, Johnny, I know you killed my duck. I was standing at the kitchen window. I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I've forgiven you. I was just wondering how long you'd let your sister make a slave out of you.
whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Manasseh actually finished strong, went back to Jerusalem. If you read the things he spent his life doing in that text, he rebuilt the walls, he rebuilt the fortifications, he took down the high places, he got rid of this, he got rid bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He actually finished strong by the grace of God. And if he can, you can too. By sheer grace. We thank you, Father, for the gospel that sets us free forever. We embrace it. We believe it. We say that Jesus is our God and our Savior. We trust in him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.